Welcome to another episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup, returning from a long international football-induced sabbatical. I'm Gareth Hanna, and joining me this week are rugby reporters Michael Sadler. Hello, Michael. Hi, Gareth. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. And Adam McHenry. Hello, Adam. Nice to see you back, Gareth. Your long much. excursion. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes. I enjoyed a few weeks off. Enjoyed being a fan. I even got a wee listener question in. It was quite a, quite a thrill. It's a down week for Ulster, obviously, but we've got plenty of things to talk about. Of course, there was Saturday's stunning Challenge Cup quarter final victory in Northampton with the Rainbow Cup uncertainty and even an entertaining Twitter spat to look back at. There's a whole host of your listener questions. But before we get into all that, we have some breaking news coming this morning. Confirmation that Marcel Kutsia has played his final game for Ulster because he's going to be released at the end of April as to let him rehab the hamstring injury that he's been out with since the start of March. So Philip Totten had actually asked with the Challenge Cup over a month of uh, the Challenge Cup final over a month away, would Ulster not have wanted Marcel to stick around for that? Or would his current injury have ruled him out? Now we did already know that Marcel had said he was uh, going to be out until at least mid-June. He was just hoping to get back for the tail end of the Rainbow Cup, maybe play a game or two in it, which now isn't going to happen. And Michael for what a servant he's been to Ulster, what he means to the province and the fans. It's a very sad way for, for his stint to come to an end. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's really, really unfortunate. I can't help but wonder, well, do we really see the best of him? Because he was he had so many injury problems, so many injury issues in the years that he was here. It is, but, you know, it's not a surprise that we're not going to see him again anyway. The clue was in him, you know, um, saying to a South African newspaper about the, the June timeline. And that made it look very, very unlikely that he would uh, be seen in an Ulster shirt again. And, and realistically, there's isn't, there is, really isn't any point in, in, in him hanging about Ulster and getting anything from him. And he's not really gaining huge amount by being here. So he may, may as well depart. But yeah, it, it's, it's very sad. You can't help but wonder what might have happened had he stayed fit for the remainder of the season. Not that things are particularly bad, obviously, because we're in a Challenge Cup or Ulster in a Challenge Cup semi-final. But how good it would it be to see him deployed and, and be able to use him in, in, uh, in this environment now? But yeah. um, I think, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be hugely surprised, should we say, what happened. Yeah. But when he was on song, you know, he, he, he really was, he was really was special to see. It's just such a shame that we really didn't see as much of him as we ought to have done since what I think he came here in 2016. So yeah. that that's the only slight nagging regret I have that, you know, it didn't quite go the same way as it did for Rune Pienaar or maybe others like Johan Muller and so on. But certainly he gave everything when he was fit and he did make a heck of a difference. Adam, have we seen the last, or obviously we've seen the last of him playing, but like, will we get any chance to, obviously the fans aren't going to be at matches, but even across TV cameras, will we get a little final word from Marcel or will he be put up for interview or anything, do you think? Oh, we don't know. Um, it's as simple as that. We'd like to hope that he'd maybe do something just to say goodbye to the fans. And more importantly, as, as journalists, I think we'd love to ask him a few questions just before he goes about his time in Ulster and, the decision to be released from his contract early, but it's, it's it's completely up to him. He owes nothing to us, you know. If he wants to go, he he can go. And I think it's quite sad that at the end of the day, he's going to leave with the most telling stat is zero trophies. And if he had stuck around till the end of the season, would he have potentially been able to get back for the Challenge Cup final and potentially play in that? Maybe we don't know. We 
we are surmising that because he's going early that that means he's not going to be back before the end of the season and he's just going to go home and do his rehab before joining up with the Bulls ahead of next season. But you would have thought maybe he would have wanted to stick around and see the guys potentially into the Challenge Cup final after all he's given for the five years, maybe bookend it with a with a team title. I know he hasn't actually played in the Challenge Cup, so I, I it may be like a hollow victory for him or something, but at least see the guys win a trophy while he's still here. But now I also have to look to the future. Uh, it's a very grim way to look at it, given how good he has been and how much better he makes Ulster when he's playing. But in some ways, it could almost be a blessing in disguise that now you don't have that... I don't want to say Spectre, but you you don't have that, you know, Marcel could see a looming to come back in. Mm. You know, you can now look at your back row and say, we don't have Marcel could see a from now. We don't need to bring him back in at any point. Mm. So let's look at what we're working with going forward. That back row of Reedy, Murphy and Timoney have been going well. You've got McCann to add in. Now you can actually say we are in the post could see a world. Now let's look yeah. at what our back row stocks are going forward. Yeah, it certainly draws a line at the end of uh, of Marcel Coutier's time at Ulster. Just finally on him, Michael, he's still due to join up with the Bulls in July. But if he is set to come back uh, from injury in mid-June, could that be sped up and in what now seems possibly an unlikely event that they're playing in the Rainbow Cup? Could he play against Ulster in June? Um I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, as he's been released from his contract here, I suppose he will be technically a Bulls player. He could. Uh, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, I suppose, but I really don't know enough about it. Um, he certainly wanted to make it into the Springboks squad, but, yeah. you know, really, will he now, having not played uh, or not be able to play until this point, and will the Bulls use him? Will he be fit? So many questions. Yeah. I, I just don't know, Gareth. I really don't know. It's, it's one to keep watch of. And while we're on the subject, then what is the, the latest on the Rainbow Cup? Because where there have been a few whispers of late that the South African teams certainly may not be taking part. What does that? Where are we with it? And what does that mean for the competition as a whole? So as it stands, uh, we have the three Interpros to start, which are still going ahead. Uh, even despite all these issues. For anybody who maybe isn't aware of the situation, the South African teams have apparently been told not to apply for visas because of the ongoing travel issues with the coronavirus pandemic. After that, there's nothing been announced. There's no games beyond the three Interpros. And I think from what I'm hearing, the Pro 14 uh, are still determined to play the games. They still want to go ahead with the games but it's all dependent on whether the South African teams can travel you know if if the South African teams can't travel over then you've got two options you either go to an interprovincial competition and you don't you know you, you just play games within Ireland or you essentially just go to a very very shortened version of the Pro 14 where you play three more games against three other teams and you go straight into the final, which to me is an absolute ludicrous way to try and play the competition, but it may be all they're left to do. So, But there, um, will, be, there will be some form of, of Rainbow Cup, even if it's... A there, to, there will be games, yes. Okay. Um, these, these three Interpro games will go ahead. Now, look, depending on the situation with the South African teams, they may rebrand it and not call it the Rainbow Cup anymore. It may just become an interprovincial competition. They may just have three more games against Leinster, Munster and Connacht again. But there will be games going ahead. That's yeah. that much we know. 
So Ulster could have been in a Pro 14 semi-final after all. A disgrace. An absolute disgrace. <laughs> wait, wait, wait till Dan McFarlane gets a hold of that. <laughs> so that answers one of our other listener questions from JW, who was just wondering if Ulster have any competitive matches scheduled in before the semi-final against Leicester, which is yes. So that Comet game, the start of the Rainbow Cup, will be played at home on April 24th, which is the week before the Leicester game. So, we obviously, before we get on to the Leicester game, we have to talk about the Northampton game. So, Northampton 27, Ulster 35, it finished. And shall we begin with the end? Because those final 20 minutes, Michael, where Ulster came back and uh, came back from behind and got the win were fairly special by all accounts because up until then it looked like it might be another disappointment for Ulster in a big game but the fact that they were able to pull that out when it looked unlikely was bound to be a huge sign of progress isn't it well it's it is it's a huge positive they you know uh, it looked like they they'd blown it in the first half they hadn't been able to score against 13 men they were 22 14 down at half time John Cooney had just missed a penalty and it kind of felt that the game control of the game had, had probably slipped from their grasp but they came out and and I think <clears throat> this will stand to them this has to stand to them going forward into the semis and, and hopefully into the final that they were able to produce a second 40 minutes and really take control of the game on the scoreboard score three really good tries only concede I think it was five points I don't think Northampton kicked the conversion and really take control of that game really have to dig deep, very deep into the resources to do that. Because if you were in any way, I suppose, a, a mentally fragile side, which we've always thought Ulster have a mental potential mental fragility as well as a possible physical fragility in certain areas, they overcame that in spades. And I'd imagine that psychologically, just what they did in that second 40 minutes will have given them an absolutely enormous boost and, and, and in, in, you know, in their own self-belief that they can transfer, you know, straight across to playing premiership side, so we could get into that later. Are they better in Pro 14 or whatever? Let's leave that aside. But that they were able to do that, but take control of the game in the way they did after, theoretically, they had and ought to have had control of the game earlier on and simply, you know, failed to, to step up at that point. So it, it yeah, it was a, it was really one of, one of their best, I think, most consistent performances of the season in that second 40 minutes. And they thoroughly deserved what they got from it. And looking at it now, you get to a semi-final, you know, you, you, you've got to think that they can make it all the way. So just as we record, we have uh, a message has come through from Pro 14, which just gives us confirmation of the first three rounds of the Rainbow Cup, which we'd been talking about, that they were going to take place regardless of whether the South African teams would travel or not. So Ulster's game against Connacht will kick off at Kingspan Stadium at quarter past eight on uh, Saturday, April 24th. But Crucially, just as regards rounds four to six, all this this release from Pro 14 says that uh, confirmation rounds four to six will follow once Pro 14 rugby has received all necessary approvals and permissions from the relevant governments and health authorities for the South African teams to travel. So in essence, that says nothing we didn't already know, but they're at least not ruling it out that it, uh, it may happen at this stage. So back to that quarterfinal win then, uh, the Challenge Cup quarterfinal win on Saturday night for Ulster, Adam. Is it over in the pudding to suggest that it might be a real turning point for Ulster under Dan McFarlane? Because if they lose that game, which it looked at halftime like they may well do, you would have all this rhetoric talking about Ulster losing all the big games this season in terms of that they've lost to, to Leinster three times, they had lost to, to lose 
twice, including the knockout game last season, and lost her as well. The fact that they pulled that out and avoided that happening, is that something that they'll take forward now? Do you think this could be something we look back at in three or four years and say that was it, that was the moment that Ulster became a team that win those matches? I think you're putting a bit too much emphasis on it, but I think this is a very important point for the team's development. I'm not going to say anything as broad as we'll be looking back on this in a few years and saying this was the moment that Ulster became a a title winning team or anything like that but I think whenever you look at how Ulster have progressed in big games I think that's the most pleasing thing you look at how badly they mismanaged the end of that Gloucester game and how they threw that away and how that cost them a place in the Champions Cup knockouts to then take it forward to this game where they take the lead and they see the game out so comfortably I think that's clear signs that this team has mentally progressed and that they know how to close out a game. Now, it's one game. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. They they managed to win this game just as much as Northampton didn't manage to win it. So let's not put too much stock in it. But at the same time, the way Ulster played that ending was exactly how you want them to play. It's exactly how they should have played against Gloucester, which is kick your corners, force Northampton to run it back. Don't make any stupid mistakes and just play like a team who are defending for their lives and and they did there were some really nice kicks in behind uh from billy burns jacob stockdale had a great one pinging the corner so i think it's, it's just part of the the evolution and growth of this team that they managed to play that way and that will serve them well going forward don't get me wrong like i'm not trying to play this down completely they they will take a lot of confidence from how they closed out that game but I, I wouldn't say it's anything necessarily that, you know, this is the flipping of a switch or anything like that. I think this is a team that's always had it in them. They've just had to learn how to how to bring it out of themselves in games. And the most pleasing thing is, you know, you go in half time, you're eight points down. You should have been probably eight points up uh, instead of eight points down, given how the first half transpired. And you come back out, you turn it around, you take the lead and you close it out so professionally. I think that second half will be a massive, massive confidence booster for them. Michael, as you mentioned earlier, and as Adam mentions there as well, a real sort of game of two halves to use the horrible cliche. What changed? What was going wrong for Ulster in the first half that that went right in, in the second half? Because even with all those yellow cards before the break, they still couldn't manage to get themselves in front. And then it just seemed like they got their got their act together. What What was the difference? Well... That's a very good question. That's a very hard one to answer. Um, they, they regathered themselves at halftime by the sounds of it. They looked at the situation calmly and pragmatically. They didn't panic. They felt they were still in the game, but that they hadn't, they, they just hadn't performed to the level that they knew they could and believed that they, they could find it. Yeah, of course, big players stood up. John Cooney, Alan O'Connor, you know, Jacob Stockdale, you could go on. They, they you know, they, they just, they knew that they could win the game and they knew that they weren't finished and they knew that they hadn't shown themselves. So they had the ability to go and do that. Well, they had to do it. So I suppose in a way, I suppose it was, it was a backs to the wall situation. Not, not a lot had gone right in the first half. And it was a question of just, you know, sorting the, the issues out and seeing what, what they could do and not leave Franklin's gardens with regrets at, or embarrassment at not being able to really push it on when they had numerical advantage on the pitch. But one player, I think, who ought to be mentioned, who hasn't been, I think, by a lot of people naturally, is Billy Burns, because Billy 
took a horrendous bang to the rib cage early in the game from oh I can't remember the Saints flanker Nicholas Equa yeah and it looked for all the world like he was done his game was done but he was able to not only pick himself up again but actually then make very telling contributions later in the game when he was needed he also made a few tackles I know he missed a few tackles but he was there he really really put himself on the line and I guess perhaps if you really wanted to epitomize or bottle that performance have a look of what Billy Burns was able to do in great adversity and probably also in considerable pain. But he stayed on till very near the end. And actually, he seemed to get better as he went along, which kind of mirrored, I think, in many ways, what was going on around him with, with his teammates. I'm not saying Ulster would have, wouldn't have done what they did had Billy gone off. But I just mean that this, this was emblematic, I think, of what they did and the attitude that they brought to the game. That even when things were going wrong, and even when, clearly... You know, it looked like he really ought to have left the field. He stayed on, gathered himself, and then was able to push things forward with one of his, you know, one of his really better displays, I think. And, and, and you've got to use that all the time by reminding yourself that that tackle, and in a way, as I say, it, you, you can use that in microcosm, I suppose, to explain what Ulster were then able to do, that they were all able to, 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 to push on from there, keep their composure, and, and, and actually start to get better. We had that whole discussion before the uh, before the Quinns game. Who do we want to start, Madigan or Lowry, if Burns didn't make it? And we were talking about how you know both of them are sort of more mercurial options, more attacking options. Look at that final try, that Stockdale try. Burns' ability to dummy, to first of all, sorry, to spot the opportunity. Uh, I, I don't know who the defender rushing under the line is, but the defender rushes out of the line and sort of half commits to the intercept, half commits to the tackle. Burns spots that, jinks inside him, and still has the composure and foresight to know that he's got Stockdale running the perfect line on his outside to get the pass away and send him over. That's the kind of thing that people are thinking you're going to get from Michael Lowry or Ian Madigan, not from Billy Burns. And here's Burns stepping up after all that's happened before, after all the hits he's taken, after all the blows he's had, and he's still able to take it to the line like that, put himself in a position where he knows he's going to get hit as soon as he passes that ball and send Stockdale through for the try that clinches it. Like, I completely agree with Michael. I, I think nobody's really been talking about how good Burns has been, but against Harlequins, and especially against Northampton, I thought he was brilliant. I thought for, for all the talk that there has been over Lowry is the 10 of the future, and I know I sort of championed that last week and the others didn't, but for all the talk of Lowry starting 10, I don't think Billy Burns has put a single foot wrong over the last couple of weeks to suggest that he should lose the jersey at all. He's even really pleased for him too, considering like in the early years, like he probably didn't get the the recognition that he maybe was deserving of at the time. Like a lot of a lot of people were maybe indicating that he, he maybe wasn't good enough, but he's certainly proven all that wrong. Well, the pr- the problem is he he gained a, a reputation for not being good enough because he took a while to settle in. He's admitted this himself. You know, this isn't a, a perception thing or anything like that. He himself has admitted it took him a while to settle in at Ulster and get to know the system. And it's understandable because I, th- I think he only joined a week or a couple of weeks before the season even began. So he came straight in. He had a couple of weeks preseason and then he was starting 10 for the first few months. And of course, it's going to take you a while to settle in. But the thing is, Ulster have stuck by him. He has gradually improved. And now we're at a position where... People are still saying, you know, Burns isn't 
the 10 of the future because they're still going back to that first year because their opinions have been soured by that. But if you look back at Burns over the last year, year and a half, Burns has been very good for Ulster. Like there are very few things he has done wrong. He's able to take the ball to the line. Um, His kicking game has improved quite a bit. He's gotten very good at kicking the corners. So I don't understand why people are clamoring for Burns to be dropped. Like I, I think he's he's been a very very good option at ten, and the f- the fact that he's in the Ireland squad should say all that you need to know. Like he he's very highly rated uh, in the national setup as well, and I think that the most pleasing thing for me is after the Six Nations he had from the bounce back the way he has with Ulster. Like that's that's the most pleasing thing. That shows a great mental fortitude and a great attitude towards the game to come out of the Six Nations where you were. You know, slaughtered on social media for missing that kick to touch against uh, Wales for then he got injured and missed out on playing England to come back and do what he has with Ulster like I couldn't be more impressed with him I think he's been brilliant yeah we'll talk about his halfback partner as well but Michael just as a as a way into that the try that turned the game really uh, John Cooney's try it was a, a clever move and a very ballsy one from the line out, especially considering as Jordy Murphy led on afterwards that uh, it had been botched somewhat in training. Yeah, that was that was a great line, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Alan probably had a word with him whatever <laughs> after that. Um, yeah. yeah, look, it 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 was. Um, I thought maybe the throw looked a little bit skewed, but never mind. You get away uh, with these things. Nice, Mom, don't mention that. Yeah, well, it quite often happens no, when I'm, you, I'm you quite... throw them really short like that. I'm but quite glad he it, mentioned it, it because was, I thought it was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody else seemed to pick up on it. <laughs> do you know? Do you know? You you know you can't you, you can't take away from it. It was it was a, it was as you said really ballsy. Is absolutely right. Um, they decided to, to to go for this move at this particular point, and uh, it worked like a dream, didn't it? Uh, very rare you see a second row taking off or a gallop like that. <laughs> down a, a kind of a, a you know a wing channel but Alan O'Connor again you know like we've spoken about Billy Burns is another player who epitomizes everything that is good about Ulster and I think it was wholly appropriate that he was the one who you know set off the train of events that then that then followed and yeah I think the idea was that Geordie had said wasn't it that you know don't don't pass it to me I'll be on your left and it'll it'll be all right which <laughs> Which Alan did, and yeah, as well as that, I mean, John, John had tried um, a couple of times to do this earlier in the game to, to dummy at the base and see if he could get through, and it hadn't really, hadn't really worked very well. But he knew this, this was, this was a different matter because he was on the line, and again, he showed composure, maturity, not to panic, knew it was on, and did it, and got there. A great move, a terrific try, and one that you know really. At that point, I mean, I think at that point, that only really with 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 Cooney's conversion, only really put them one point ahead. Again, it it again helped change the nature of the game, helped change its narrative. It had already really started. Ulster had, 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 were already playing by far the better rugby. It was just a, co- a question of whether they could get the points. Yeah, that, and with that, that try, they certainly did, didn't they? And, and I think that was the score that made it. You know, Marty Moore's score got them back in it, of course, but then Northampton scored again. But that was the one. I think that suddenly the only real doubts that were lingering then were in Northampton minds from then on. Yeah. I, th- I think that that was the score that sort of rocked Northampton because up to that point, Ulster hadn't mm. managed to score from outside the 22. Like all of their scores had come from <laughs> either a kick to the corner or 
Well, no, sorry, just, just from Kicks to the Corner because the first two were from Malls and uh, Marty's was from a five metre line out that the Mall didn't get over, but then they just kept driving. That was the first time that Ulster really broke into the 22, put a few phases together and then got over. So that one was kind of, you know, the, the myth was dispelled that mm. Ulster could only score if Northampton themselves gave away penalties and Ulster kicked to the corner. So mm. at that point, they knew that all of a sudden... Ulster weren't a one-trick pony anymore. They could they could score from outside the twenty-two. I, I just think it was like like you know a, a Disney uh, a Disney movie where you know the the team coming into the big game they can't get the move right that they know will win them the game uh, in practice and then they get into the game they call it in the last minute and they score. <laughs> I just thought I just thought whenever Jordy said that it just was like that's something that you you find in a Hollywood script or something like that. <laughs> the mighty ducks of Ulster. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, the man then to touch that one down was John Cooney. And after the game, he spoke to the media and spoke very emotionally as to what it means for him to play for Ulster and uh, to be playing well for Ulster. So here's a little clip of, of some of what he had to say. Yeah, I, I think I got about 25, 30 messages off fans there saying how great it was to see us get into the semi-final. And I think that's that's always been the Ulster way. And through tough times myself, I found that they've always reached out to me. And um, it's, it, it's quite cliche, people always say it, but I do think we have the best fans. And for something like that to, to bring home to them, and, and maybe by then there might be uh, better restrictions in terms of celebrations, but it, it does matter and it, it does mean a lot to us. And it does feel like we have them there behind us. And um, yeah, it, it matters a lot to me and it matters to everyone else because they go to every game. It means a lot to them. That's their Friday nights, that's their Saturday nights. And I don't think we forget that even through these times. I, I'd be lying to say those couple of months were the toughest I've had in rugby for years. And, and probably only recently came out the other side of it. And I was just thinking this week that I felt really good. And maybe that's the back of that performance today. But there was actually a couple of incidents around um, that time of people reaching out to me that made a big difference to me. And um, somebody talked to me about speaking about mental health and how she was struggling and off the back of things I had said made a big difference to her and her life and that means a lot to me and, and for people to reach out and say I hope I'm okay meant a lot to me and also I get a bit emotional here but that matters like uh, to me as a person I'm, it means a lot to me to play for Ulster and I've always played as that type of person that wears his heart on his sleeve and can probably get in the way of my personal health sometimes but it matters and small things like that can make a big difference to people. So Michael that it really does just uh, epitomize everything of of what it means for John to be here and to be um hitting form again um in in that white or or red jersey and of course people will once again wonder why he hasn't been able to do that in a green jersey but that's the way that's the way it's it it's worked out for him and he has as Dan McFarland spoke about him as well very eloquently he he's uh, as indeed John did he's put all of this behind him it was very, very difficult. Now, whether or not he, in his own mind, has now given up any notion of playing for Ireland again, he's not saying. But certainly, he's come out of this, not for the first time, uh, of the adversity of losing his place to the Pro 14 final, not making it in Dandy Farrell's plans. He's he's come out of this a stronger stronger person and, 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 and probably a better player. And you can't ask for any more than that, can you? Obviously, he's out of contract next year, and there has been some talk that if he doesn't get back with Ireland, which at this stage it, it looks highly unlikely, that he might just decide that he wants something different. But the way he talks about Ulster's fans might make you think, oh, he, he might stay on. It's just it's hard to know, Adam. It's the heart versus head argument, isn't it? I, I think if 
you gave him the choice, then he would stay with Ulster his, for the rest of his career. But the problem is rugby is a short career. You never know when your next game is going to be. And bottom line is that the money isn't in the Pro 14. Mm. And John is someone who definitely would be looked at by some French teams as a player who's not playing international rugby, but is of an international quality and is a playmaking nine, which they especially love over in the top 14. So look, I, I can't make any comments on his behalf. I, I don't know what uh, what John's preference would be, but by all account, well, from listening to what he had to say there, he, he loves it at Ulster and he loves playing in front of the fans at Kingspan Stadium. But if he wants to go for a big pay pack at the end of his career, I don't think I don't think anybody could hold it against him. He's not a, he's not near the end of his career yet. Don't get me wrong; he he's still got several more years in him. But if he wanted to go and make some money, then I think he could. And nobody at Ulster should hold it against him because yeah. he has been such a great servant to the team for for the last <clears> few <throat> years that he, he's well within his rights to go and do that. But at the same time. I would be very surprised if there wasn't another extension on offer at, at Kingspan Stadium at the end of this current deal. Mm. Um, so he'll have the option, I'm sure, and I don't think there'll be an easy call either way for him. But look, if he left, you can't hold it against him. If he stayed, that would be great, obviously. So the draw for the semi-final was made on uh, Sunday afternoon, late on Sunday afternoon, and it was the quickest draw for a sporting competition I had ever seen. It was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. The whole thing done and dusted in about two minutes. I was absolutely <laughs> delighted. Well done to everybody concerned with that, but it pitted, uh, well, not well done for John Ulster away from home again, because they're away to Leicester <clears> this time, Michael. They're going to have to make it three wins in England if they <laughs> to reach the final uh, as we'd sort of yeah. said before the last draw if they're going to win this they're going to do it the hard way and that's uh, even more true now yeah and that will stand to them even more should they you know should 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 they get through at Welford Road um, I think you've got to also emphasize that being away from home it's never easy for any team but in in the current environment and I'm not sure where we're going to be in with with crowds and so on in England, but I, I can't imagine they're going to be there in in late April, early May. It it does level things a bit for uh, for teams. There isn't that atmosphere. You're not, you know, you don't get that. There's nothing coming from the crowd whatsoever. So in a way, I, I think that's a bit of a leveler, and I don't think that the home and away thing is just as much, just as hugely significant as it would normally be with a heaving, noisy, intimidating crowd there. Nevertheless, it's still not easy. It's far from it. I think, you know, Dan McFarland will be somewhat perplexed that yet again, he's not been able to get, you know, a fixture back here in, in Belfast and they're going to have to travel. And once more, you know, they, they're going to be asked, they're going to be asked some very searching questions in this particular tie as well. Though I do think it's probably more preferable than having to go to say uh, play Bath at the Rec. Nevertheless, it 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 it's not it's it's never going to be easy, is it? But it's a semi final now. Anything could happen, and I think that Ulster will go rightly with with confidence mm. that if they can produce anything, you know, in, in the vicinity, if not better than what they did in that second half, but if they can manage it for more of the eighty minutes that they'll feel very confident of making their first European final since 2012. Northampton are a better team than Leicester are, so Ulster having already beaten Northampton yeah. in England will be will be a massive confidence booster for them. But I, I watched Leicester against Newcastle. Probably the most concerning thing is their scrum was utterly dominant against the Falcons. Like Their front row were phenomenal in that game, and Ulster's scrum wasn't 
solid against Northampton. It held its own for the most part, but there were a few penalties given away. Uh, so they'll have to do some work in the in the type five, but that's going to be a cracking game. Like Ulster and Leicester, they've played each other quite a bit recently. That there is kind of that history there. There's obviously the the thirty three nil. There's the forty one seven at Ravenhill. The two wins at Welford Road. The one that completed the six from six uh, pool stage and the uh, the one that sent them into the quarterfinals a couple of years ago. So Ulster and Leicester have that nice bubbling rivalry going on that's just underneath the surface. It's not a full-blown hatred or anything like that, but there, there's just something there which makes this a really interesting tie. I'm, I'm, glad they, I'm glad they drew Leicester as opposed to the other two teams. I, th- I think that's going to be a really interesting one. For like a club like Leicester, or like Leicester, sorry, Ulster's record against them, seven wins from 10 games, which like they have won that many home and away is quite incredible against a, a team like Leicester. Ulster just have their number, Michael. What is it? I don't know what it is, but yes, uh, you can look at that. It doesn't mean diddly when we get to, you know, the business, <laughs> the business of getting down to this particular yeah. game. But it's something that we can all talk about, that they do generally, they do succeed against this, against whatever the Tigers put out against them. Um, so... Why not do it again? Indeed, why not? But Adam's absolutely right. The issue that I was most concerned about were two issues with Northampton was indeed the scrum, uh, which kind of got through the experience. And also the fact that perhaps, you know, they, they, they hadn't been playing or pushed to the edge in their recent games. But look, Leicester are a completely different thing. And that is still an issue that they could really do a job on Ulster up front, which the sort of job Northampton didn't do. And that would be my massive concern. My first Ulster game was actually against uh, Leicester of uh, the Martin Johnson era, about, I don't know what it would have been, 2004, 2005 maybe, and Ulster did indeed win win that day. Fairly easily. Well, uh, oh, Mark, that was Martin that was Johnson a retired actually, uh, announced his retirement very shortly after, after that 33-0 game. Ulster took them to cleaners, but then they got them the following week or in, in the next time they played them anyway. Yeah, because I remember him up in the stand and I would just happen to be walking in front of where he was sitting and I didn't realise he was there. I can't remember where, where I was walking to, just in, at the top of the terrace and at the old stand, like where the, the sort of wee barrier bit was well, up. And then just as I was walking past, something happened on the pitch and he stood up and let this roar out of him, like to his team. <laughs> the absolute yite out of me. It was ter- terrifying as a 12-year-old boy. Well, I, 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 I was working in the game, so just shows you how old I am. And I remember... <laughs> All the rumours were beforehand that he his retirement was imminent. And that's exactly what the post-match was all about. Dean Richards, who was the then coach, was put under the microscope as to, first of all, what was happening with Martin Johnson. And secondly, uh, when he was going to basically step down after <laughs> as, Leicester, as Leicester boss. It was like some sort of football press conference, you know. It was really something extraordinary. And all the English press were there. The tabloids were there and they were just going for him. Yeah. But one thing I would say, Johnson actually signed autographs for ages outside the the old stand changing room which i thought he didn't need to do but was very generous of him so after that draw the uh, odds for the overall winner of the competition fairly interesting ulster remain favorites they're now uh, at about 11 to 8 bath are 7 to 4 leicester are 4 to 1 and montpellier 7 to 1 to get their hands on the challenge cup trophy at the end of it all now dan mcfarland in your piece today, Michael said he finds it hilarious that Ulster are favourites for the competition. What do we think? Do we think it's it's justified or is it a bit of a joke? Oh, I don't know. I mean, they, they look, you're, you're down to four teams now. And um, Ulster, 
Uh, well, I mean, they, they, they played a Harlequins team that weren't really much cop. They did well to overcome Northampton Saints and overcome themselves. Oh, I don't know. Maybe favourites is a bit bit much. I'm guessing the bookies have looked as well at the Pro 14 and thought, yeah, yeah, you know, they're there, thereabouts, which perhaps isn't the, you know, the, the greatest of indicators. But I'm guessing if you, you know, you look at the other teams, you know, and, and you look at where Ulster have done in their league and you weigh it all up. Yeah, I, I could see where they're coming from. But look, you know what? I don't know whether they should be favourites or not. I, I really don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't think it's going to bother them too much. Though I must admit, I'd hate to be favourites going into the semi-final and, and, and being talked about as favourites. There's nothing worse than being told that and, and you know, everybody saying, ah, you'll do this, you'll do this. But um, I'd, honestly, I don't know, Gareth. Are they? Should they be favourites? Is it justified? I don't know. As, as Dan often says, or said the other night, bookies don't often get it wrong. Mm. So we'll only know if they go on and win the final, won't we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> can, I, can I take a different approach and say, yes, I think they are favourites? Because I think I think if you look at the semi-final draw and you look at who who would be the favourites to go through from the two semi-finals, and then you say probably Ulster, maybe maybe Bath. Look, I I don't know who's really favourites in that other one. I think that's really a 50-50 game, but I would say Ulster are favourites to get through their game, and then you back Ulster against either Bath or Montpellier in the final. I think it's it's different if Ulster are going away to Montpellier. I think it's maybe a little bit different if Ulster are going away to Bath. But I think Ulster away to Leicester, they are favourites to win. Therefore, you put them in the final and you would back them at a neutral venue against either Bath or Montpellier. I don't know how the final's going to work if it's going to be at a neutral venue. I think they're still intending for it to be at a neutral venue, but they might have to go to one of the home teams because simply because of COVID. But look, I think that makes Ulster favourites because they are favourites to get to the final and then you would back them against either of the other two teams at a neutral venue in the final. And I think that makes it interesting because now Ulster in a position that I don't think they've been in possibly since 2006, maybe, where they are favourites to win a competition. You look at all the competitions that they've played in since then, they are playing second fiddle to Leinster. And at some points they're dropping even further down behind Munster and Ospreys and Scarlets at the various times that they were up there. For the first time in a long time, Ulster are actually favourites with the bookies. They're not even just being talking about being some pundits' favourites. They are literally the favourites with the bookies. <laughs> How do they manage that expectation? This is a this to me is more important than finding ways to win trophies just generally how do you manage the expectation when you are expected to win a game because for ages we've heard Ulster say we love being underdogs we love not being talked about (laughs) spoiler alert guys you're now being talked about so how do you manage that expectation and it'll be interesting to see how they go about their business in the semi-final and then hopefully the final where they are rightly being talked about as being the favourites to win. So one more talking point that some of our listener questions have pointed us towards from the weekend was not on the pitch but rather on Twitter. So Mark Dempsey first asked, do you agree with Dan Bigger's assessment that the Gallagher Premiership is miles ahead of the Pro 14? And Stuart Watson asks for our thoughts on the Dan Dewey and Stephen Ferris Twitter spot. So this was something that I had seen over the weekend too, and it was almost as good viewing as the Ulster game itself. So it all started after the game. Well, Ferris had already tweeted, uh, another Pro 14 team gives a Premiership team a lesson away from home, dot, dot, dot. And then... Uh, Dan Toohey tweeted, having had more clubs than Tiger, I promise you the English Prem is by far the hardest. It's as physical as top 14 
but quicker. So then in this uh, tweet, Darren gave tags Ferris, causing a bit of mayhem there, Darren. Love it. And then Ferris comes back replying to Dan and says, mate, you played 10 games in the Prem and most of them were off the bench. So this starts a whole big thing and the fans are all jumping on because this is all hilarious. And then basically it boils down to Chewie's replying to loads of people at this stage. You can go and have a look at it all. But he basically says the four Irish teams would make a good fist of the Premiership. Leinster would win it most years. Munster would be top four, likely. Ulster top six, Connacht top eight. He's sort of uh, guessing at. Interestingly, Tim Visser also came on. Uh, he's played for Newcastle, Edinburgh and Harlequins. And he's, he reckoned there's no difference between the Premiership and the Pro 14. It all ended on good terms, Dan saying that good healthy debate never hurt anyone and tagging Stephen in. So um, it was good fun, but it did point to the wider debate of Pro 14 or Premiership. What do we think? Oh, God. No, it was really, really tough questions. Um, <laughs> all I can say is that another player who I was speaking to who's played in both recently, without me even asking, made it abundant to me that Premiership is the hardest and most physical and demanding league he'd ever played in and he had played he's put in substantial time in, in both uh, and that was nothing to do with this Twitter spot so I can only go on the basis of someone who knows mm-hmm. and that was his view without a shadow of a doubt I think it's interesting that Tim Visser came on and started defending the Pro 14 <clears> but <throat> it's interesting that it was a back defending it and two he was looking at it from a forwards perspective yeah, like I, I don't want to sort of jump on the Pro 14 bashers bandwagon because the Pro 14 does undoubtedly have its benefits. I think it's probably slightly faster than both the Premiership and the Top 14. But in terms of the the competition, yeah, I would say the Premiership's tougher than the Pro 14. And you only have to look at Ulster's season just gone by to see how the disparity between the top and the bottom. Yeah. Ulster... Ulster were tearing teams apart apart from Leinster and in the Premiership you do have games each week where teams down near the bottom can beat teams near the top so I, I would I would say that the Premiership is tougher but I, I read a good piece uh, the other day comparing and contrasting the the two leagues and they both have their merits you know the Premiership you get competition each week you get you get so many more games that are tight. You get games that you come away with a lot more satisfaction from winning just on a week-to-week basis. But the Pro 14, you get a lot more development. You get to see a lot of guys coming through. There are a lot more games during international windows. So you get to see guys coming through, like the ones that we have seen coming through at Ulster this year. And we know that Leinster plays so many young players every year. So there's merits to both, but I would definitely say from a competitive standpoint and a toughness standpoint, on a week-to-week basis, it's the Premiership. At the top end of the Pro 14, I'd say there's not much between the Pro 14 and the Premiership, but on a week-to-week basis, yeah, I'd say the Premiership's tougher. Yeah, and remember Dan Beggar weighed in with that as well, saying that it mm. blows the Pro 14 out of the water, the intensity that the Premiership brings. So Yeah, yeah well, if, well if, you, if you imagine Dan Beggar at the Ospreys, <laughs> The Ospreys would go maybe one week playing Leinster to playing Zebra the next week. You know, that that's night and day between the two teams in terms of quality. Whereas if you go to Northampton and you play Exeter one week and let's say Worcester the next week, 
all right, Worcester aren't as good as Exeter, but I would say the difference between Exeter and Worcester is a lot smaller than the difference between Leinster and Zebra. Well, the important thing is that all of that doesn't mean that Ulster aren't going to beat Leicester, and uh, that's all that matters right now. So, just, just be careful how you say that, Garth. It sounds like you're saying Leinster. Better make sure. <laughs> we know sure there's definitely Leicester. We know mm-hmm. Ulster Maybe are the Tigers will be easier. Yeah, j- just go with the Tigers. That's safe. <laughs> yeah. Ireland women are back in uh, Six Nations action. They beat Wales 45-0 at the weekend. A very impressive victory. And coming up this weekend is a game at home to France. Now, if they win that, it will put them through to the final against England. As regards Ulster players in the squad, Catherine Dean started that win over Wales. Neve Jones and Brittany Hogan were both on the bench and Claire Bowles wasn't involved in the match day squad, but is part of the, the wider Six Nations squad. Now, if they get a win this weekend and manage to get through to the final, it's a, a great achievement and a good sign of where the, where the squad's going. Certainly, yeah. Um, I think that's probably the thing that you want to see most from Ireland right now because without disparaging them, England are going to win this tournament. England are a full-time operation on the women's side. Uh, So it would take a massive performance on the day for anyone to overcome them. But the thing is, you can see the signs of improvement within Ireland. You could see how clinical they were at the weekend. I think they were they were thirty odd points up at half time, um, and it's bad I don't know that because I watched the game. Um, but they they didn't give Wales a sniff. They uh, they were so clinical whenever they had ball in hand. Catherine Dean I think had three assists on on her own, which is incredible. I thought she had a great game there. Mm. Um, Davin Parsons is a fantastic winger like the potential that girl has is incredible every time she touches the ball it turns to gold so they all they can do is just keep building and it looks like after the building blocks they put in place so at the end of last year they've brought them forward into this six nations game now wales weren't exactly the greatest opposition so how much can you really take from that we'll have to see they'll get a much sterner test against france this week you know, coming back to Dublin, getting home advantage, that could be big. And really, you'd just like to see them really put it up to the French. And if they can get a win and get into the final, then that's a massive boost. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, one game to look forward to this weekend while we uh, await Ulster's game the following weekend at home to Connacht. So Ireland kick off this weekend against France on uh, Saturday afternoon at quarter past two. So that's us for this week. We will be back very soon to look ahead to Ulster's game against Connacht in the Rainbow Cup, as we say. But for now, Michael Sadler, thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam McKendry. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You have a good time as well. I did have a good time, yes. I've quite enjoyed being back on the analyst side as opposed to hosting. Variety is the spice of life. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth Hanna as well. Thanks very much for joining us.